You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. I am your host. This is the show where we talk about everything or where I at least talk about everything, and I hope it encourages you, I hope it challenges you, I hope it informs you, I hope that it helps, because all of those things I just mentioned, encouraging, challenging, those are helpful, or at least they can be. Challenge does not always feel helpful in the moment. And what I mean by challenge is when we see that someone could do more, could do better, and we let them know, this is not your best work. I think of a story I read about in some book. I don't remember which one. So there's an opportunity for me to challenge myself to know these things better, remember them better. But in any event... The story was of a speechwriter, and I don't remember who the speechwriter was, but he wrote a speech for Henry Kissinger. He writes the speech, he gives it to Kissinger, Kissinger replies with a note saying, is this the best you can do? The speechwriter tells Kissinger, well, no, it's not the best I can do. I, I can do better. Let me have it back. I'll, I'll rework it. And so the speechwriter reworks it, and he gives it another go and submits it again. He gets the same response from Kissinger. Well, I, I don't know. I suppose maybe that wasn't my best work either, the speechwriter says. And so... He takes the speech and goes through it again another time. Submits it again. Same response from Kissinger. This happens several times. Until finally the speechwriter is just beside himself. He's frustrated. He's reworked this thing over and over and over again. And finally, the last time, he submits it to Kissinger. When he gets the all-too-familiar now, question, is this the best you can do? Is this your best work? The speechwriter blows up. He explodes. Yes, yes, yes. This is the best I can do. If this isn't good enough, then I don't know what to tell you. Oh, okay, says Kissinger. Well, then I'll go ahead and read your speech. You see, the response from Kissinger maybe said something about his observations of the speechwriter, that he didn't believe that the speechwriter was giving it his all, was taking this as seriously as he could. Perhaps he thought the speechwriter, as a matter of course, was coasting. Maybe Kissinger was busy and he was stalling for time and he wasn't going to have the opportunity to go through this speech with the speechwriter, but he wanted, when he did have the time, for it to be of maximum utility, to go as far as possible. I don't know. In any event, it's a funny story, 
because all the while that the speechwriter is frustrated that he's being rejected, in a certain sense, he knows he should be rejected. He knows he can do better until the very last when he blows up and he says, this is the best I've got. Take it or leave it. Oh, okay. Well, good. Right? When it comes to our own communication, our own planning, our own execution of plans, our own balance between planning and being spontaneous, the way that we relate to one another, how ordered we are versus how disorganized we're comfortable with things being. Every facet of life for the human being born into a fallen creation, being himself a broken creature, has ample opportunity for improvement, for getting better, for doing better. And we ought to strive for excellence in whatever it is that God has allotted to us. And in our relationships with one another, we ought to kindly, gently, mercifully encourage and challenge one another to do our best. As Christians, our premise is that our best, the best we can do, is never going to be good enough until Jesus comes back, his second coming, takes his saints with him and makes them completely sanctified, completely perfect. When we are given new bodies, when we are made whole once and for all, then and only then will we be perfect. And in the meantime, even though those who belong to Christ have the Holy Spirit residing in them, with them, we have the oracles of God in his scriptures, nevertheless, we also have remnants of this sinful nature. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil to contend with around us, pulling us off track in countless ways. And nevertheless, all the same, we read that all scripture is God-breathed and suitable for correction, for rebuke, for instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Correction, rebuke, instruction, it's an interesting thing that as Christians we have this competing imperative between grace, grace from God to us, grace from us to one another, and also holiness. Be holy for I am holy. I was talking with my cousin Micah Hirschberger last night, and I wanted his take on a recent set of podcasts, three actually, over the past week, I did on the subject of Kevin DeYoung's review of this book by Kwan and Thompson, Reparations, and also the response from Kwan and Thompson to this review by Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition. I wanted to get Micah's take on it because Micah and I have engaged in this exhaustive process with our own work for years and years, wherein I write something, and I send it to him, and I ask him, can you take a look at this? 
much like I did with the podcast episodes. Hey, can you give this a listen when you have time, if you have time, and give me some feedback? What was good in it? What could be better? What was not so great? Help me unpack how to make this as good as it possibly can be, as clear as it possibly can be, as helpful and true and God-honoring and loving as it possibly can be. And over the years, over a hundred articles have gone from myself to Micah. I have no idea how many articles have gone from Micah to myself. Maybe that many. But any way you slice it, the process is the same. You write something and you want it to be as perfect as it possibly can be. And you know that it isn't perfect, but you want it to be as perfect as it can be. And at a certain point, you say, it's perfect enough, but you want to be like Henry Kissinger asking his speechwriter, is this the best you can do? Only you ask yourself that question, is this the best I can do? And then after you have exhausted your own ability to be objective about your work, you send it to someone else who can be relied on to give you honest, fair, helpful criticism. And you ask them, is this the best I can do? And they either say, this is brilliant, which happens sometimes, and it's nice when that happens on the first try. Or, as is more often the case, they say, you know, I think you could remove this section. I think this would be better moved to the end. I think this here could be worded more clearly. I think this is not supported with pieces of evidence. This claim you make is rather large, general, the audience isn't going to know what you're talking about unless you introduce it. I think this right here is fluff. This here is sending mixed signals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you reckon with that. And even your reckoning with that is not going to be perfect, but it will be more perfect. And as Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol being the grave. Might as well make the most of the chances you have to do good work, to work hard, to work excellently while you're alive because you won't be doing much work when you're dead, will you? In the course of conversation with Micah last night and his feedback on my three podcasts in which I asked him specifically, how is my tone? Am I being overly harsh? Am I being overly critical? Am I being unfair? Am I being unclear? etc., etc., we got to talking about what the prevalent attitude is among Christian leaders in America. And he told me about a panel discussion that he had watched a YouTube video for recently in which Doug Wilson and John Piper both were being open and honest about how we as Christians relate to sin and folly. What should our tone be when we are confronting bad behavior, sinful attitudes, untruths, inside the church, outside the church? The response from Doug Wilson, as Micah told me anyway, was something to the effect that we would do well to study the response that Jesus gives 
at various points to the religious leaders, even to his own disciples sometimes, but especially consistently the religious leaders in his day. Jesus responds very bluntly, very often. You brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, blind guides, sons of Satan. He calls them hypocrites. He warns the people with them present to not be like them, to not pray like them, to not give like them. They hate him for it. And yet, would they love him any more if he had been complimentary? In the case of Jesus' disciples, sometimes he is very direct, very blunt. And we don't have in-depth records in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of how the disciples felt when Jesus rebuked them directly or when he chided them. But we do know what their long-term response was, regardless of their emotions in the moment. Their long-term response was that they listened to the correction of Christ, their master, their savior, their Lord. And so Doug Wilson talks about this, and he references those WWJD bracelets that everyone was wearing. Everyone was putting bumper stickers saying WWJD, what would Jesus do on their cars in the 90s. And as tacky as that often was, as flippant as it could be when we ask that question, when we give that acronym, Doug Wilson said that there was actually some good in asking that question, and we do well to ask that question. And part of the answer, you and I know, to the question of what would Jesus do is found in examining and studying what he did do. What would Jesus do? Probably what he did do generally speaking. How did Jesus communicate? Sometimes he was very blunt, very direct, because sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes, depending on your audience, you have to be. Otherwise, they're not going to catch your point. It's like the guy who has gone to one too many rock concerts and stood a little too close to the amps and the speakers and now his hearing is not so great. And when you're with him, if you want to carry on a conversation, not only do you have to accept that he's talking louder, you have to talk louder in order to be heard by him. It's like an older gentleman who has worked around heavy machinery his whole life, and now he has hearing loss. And after so many what's, huh? Can you say that again? Eventually, you just accept that you're going to have to talk louder if he is going to understand your meaning, if he's going to understand what you're saying at all. Well, so also with the way that we phrase our communications with the hard-hearted, with the stubborn, with the willful, with the unrepentant, with the self-righteous, with those who think themselves above reproach, while at the same time doing things which do need to be corrected for their benefit, for the benefit of those around them, for God's glory. And when that is the case, 
When we are dealing with those people who are hard of hearing, if we are too soft-spoken on principle, it interferes with effective communication. For the people who are in the audience, do they benefit if we are so soft-spoken that they can't take our meaning? Now, I realize this can go too far, and some people take it too far on purpose, with relish. A certain J.D. Hall in Sydney, Montana, with whom I am all too familiar, takes this too far on purpose and enjoys, I would say, perhaps sadistically, increasing the volume to make people uncomfortable when it's not necessary, and then hiding behind the example of Jesus when Jesus was blunt and direct, using that as license for bad behavior on his part, a bad attitude on his part. And insofar as we have a shortage of bold Christian leaders, comparative in relation to the problems of our current time, our present situation, folks like that sometimes get a platform and an audience that they ought not to because we're just so desperate for boldness, clarity, courage. But I agree with Doug Wilson. I agree with Doug Wilson's question that he asked after he brought up the WWJD bracelets and bumper stickers. And his question was this, why is it that when we say we want to be more like Jesus, very often in American society, we don't necessarily mean being like Jesus when Jesus is bold and direct and blunt and pointed. We don't necessarily want to be like Jesus when Jesus is correcting an individual or a group of people who need correcting. We don't want to be like that Jesus. We want to be like the Jesus who feeds 5,000. We want to be like the Jesus who tells the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, gently. We want to be the good cop. Let the others who have brought the woman caught in adultery to us, asking whether this woman should be stoned to death for her sin, let them be the bad cop. We want to be the good cop. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone we hear ourselves saying, like Jesus. And all the while, we miss the boldness and cleverness, perhaps, of Jesus throwing down the gauntlet for those same religious leaders who are trying to trap him. Let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And looking at them, looking them square in the eyes, challenging them, like... The Earp brothers in Tombstone with a big mouth cowboy. Law dog don't go around here standing nose to nose and not backing down. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Ooh, that was unexpected. John Piper, not surprisingly, wanted to follow up and answer this question that Doug Wilson had addressed. And John Piper's response, I think you could probably predict if you're familiar with John Piper and his work, 
in his ministry, his public statements, for instance, the one right before the 2020 election in which he publicly wringed his hands over voting for Trump. And by extension, he did wring the hands of all of the people who admire him so greatly, and he made excuses for justification of voting for Biden as the lesser of two evils. Is abortion really that big of a deal compared to somebody tweeting mean things? I think not, Piper concludes, essentially. Piper, at this panel discussion, as I'm told, and I need to find the video and watch it for myself, Piper tells everyone, yes, Jesus was bold and direct, but we ought to err on the side of caution. We ought to err on the side of being meek, humble, gentle. Micah, my cousin, gives me credit for having said years and years ago in the course of writing that I hate that phrase. I hate that phrase, err on the side of caution. I hate it. As Christians, we're not called to err on the side of caution. John Piper aside, the scriptures do not call us to err on the side of caution. I'll put it that way. We are, in our present context, over and over, repeatedly, day after day, day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday, Christian radio, listening spree after Christian radio, listening spree, popular Christian book after popular Christian book, we are encouraged to err on the side of caution. And yet, what does the scripture say? The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I love that verse. You can put that on my tombstone. Please do. I hope I'm worth putting that on my tombstone when my manner of life, conduct, speech, bearing justifies it. The righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. We are not called in the scriptures to err on the side of caution. We're called to be holy, for God is holy. We are called to be always ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, but to do so with gentleness and respect. But the truth is supposed to be pure. We're supposed to rejoice in the truth. And the truth is supposed to be pure. Jesus says at one point, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He doesn't say that we should err on the side of caution. Caution, as the world regards caution, would have Christians erring on the side of something quite short of the truth, quite other, in fact. When the world says jump, we ask God, how high can I jump before you're going to be upset with me? Instead of coming right back at the world and saying, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan is the one who tells Jesus when he is being tempted in the desert for 40 days after being baptized by John in the Jordan. Satan tells Jesus to throw himself down from these cliffs. 
this high place, and that God, the Father, will send his angels to keep Jesus from dashing his foot on the rocks. And Jesus responds, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. There's the almost true in what Satan says every time he tries to tempt Jesus. There's an almost true. There's a kernel of truth, but it's not quite true. And that not quite is critically important. That not quite true is all the difference in the world between eating the forbidden fruit and telling the serpent to take a hike. Hath God said? Hmm. Well, maybe I should err on the side of caution here. No. Why err at all? I've said it for years, and I'll keep saying it, and I hope you can put it on my tombstone. Why err on the side of caution? Why err at all? Why err at all? To err is human, to forgive is divine, but the goal of the Christian should not be to err on the side of caution. The goal of the Christian should be to be holy, for he is holy. For God, the Lord our God, he is one, he is holy. And in the process of trying to be holy, yes, we will sometimes err on the side of caution. And yes, sometimes we will err on the side of being too brash. But we ought not to make it our goal to err on the side of caution any more than we should make it our goal to err on the side of being brash. Our goal should be holiness. And so, accordingly, when God gives us liberty to be cautious, to be sober and vigilant for our adversary, the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, to resist the devil firm in our faith, when God gives us not only liberty, but calls us to that, commands us, admonishes us to do that in his word, then it's not erring at all to be cautious. But to be cautious when we're supposed to be bold is error and sin. He who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. To be cautious reminds me too much of the servant who buried his talents in a field. Talents being a unit of money. He was given money from the master to invest it while the master was away. And the servant who buried his talents in the field, rather than even putting them in the bank where they could have gained some interest, much less investing in some kind of an enterprise on behalf of his master, that servant was erring on the side of caution, and he was rebuked. Looked at another way, it's not caution at all when we err on the side of appeasing the crowd. Pontius Pilate is appeasing the crowd when he releases Barabbas and condemns innocent Jesus. I find no fault in him, he says, and yet Jesus ends up nailed to a cross by his hands and his feet, flogged. The flogging was an injustice. That was Pontius Pilate erring on the side of caution. Pontius Pilate wanted to flog Jesus and then release him, but even the flogging was a grave injustice. It was an effort at compromise with the crowd. And as such, it was wicked because the crowd shouting crucify him was stirred up by the devil. And when the crowd is stirred up by Satan himself, you don't listen to the crowd. Except as much as you need to 
in order to rebuke them and call them to repentance. But you resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't see if you can make a deal with the devil. You don't negotiate with the devil. You respond, it is written, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am not a fan of erring on the side of caution. That doesn't mean that I never do err on the side of caution, but I am dead set against that advice. My spidey sense tingles something fierce every time I hear that advice. Let's err on the side of caution. Hold the phone. We are on the front end admitting and recognizing that this is error. Where people are concerned and public opinion, public perception of us is concerned, if we err on the side of caution and we even call it that on the front end, are we not disobeying Jesus when Jesus says, have no fear of men who can only kill the body and then can do nothing more to you. Fear God who can both kill the body and throw the soul into hell forever. Fear God. What does the wisdom literature in the Old Testament say? Does it say the fear of man is the beginning of wisdom and that the fear of God lays a snare? No. It says that the fear of man lays a snare, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God, fear God, fear God. We're told over and over and over again, even as we are also told to fear not anything else. Erring on the side of caution seems to invert that, particularly where our communication is concerned, where we are admonishing one another. John Piper, respectfully, sir, that is bad advice to err on the side of caution. It implies that Jesus should have erred on the side of caution. But did he ever? Did Jesus ever err on the side of caution? Sometimes he was extraordinarily gentle. And because he is perfect, we can deduce that he was gentle when it was proper and appropriate to be gentle. Sometimes he was extraordinarily merciful and compassionate, miraculously so. And we can deduce from his perfection from his being the spotless Lamb of God, that every time he was, it was the exact right time to be gracious, compassionate, merciful, and that he did not err. It would have been an error to be harsh, vitriolic, combative, abrasive in those moments, and he didn't err. He was not always meek and mild, though, when Jesus was direct, pointed, some might even say unkind, we look at that, we look at those examples, and we demonstrate to ourselves that kindness must be defined a bit differently than we've come to define it. Because even in those moments where Jesus is talking louder for the sake of those who are hard of hearing, there is a kindness to err as human, to forgive as divine. By God's grace, we study the example of Jesus. When he was gentle, where he was gentle, we do well to follow the example of the master and be gentle. 
to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, because we are being sent out as sheep among wolves. Where Jesus was pointed, direct, blunt, we do well to be pointed, direct, and blunt. We do well to not mistake Jesus' kindness for weakness, but we also do well to not confuse immature Christians and also those outside of the church. Because those outside of the church, very often in my experience who are atheists, they look at how nice Christians are much of the time, and they look at how seemingly, to their minds, unkind, unfair God is in the Old Testament. Jesus is even in the New Testament. And they get this idea that God the Father, God the Son, are being unkind sometimes because we Christians give a false impression of what kindness entails, what kindness requires. Kindness is always this. It's always being soft-spoken. Well, except when your audience is hard of hearing, then you must be bold and direct Maybe raise your voice a little bit. Jocko Willink talks about this kind of, sort of, in a way, you could say, in his book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, Field Manual, where he encourages his readers to raise their volume in a strategic way when that's the only way to be heard by the people under your command you need to give instructions to. In the middle of a battle... A firefight, explosions, gunfire going off all around you, people being killed and wounded on your side, on the enemy's side. You have to be able to give clear commands to your soldiers, to your seamen, to your marines, to your direct reports, to your team. You have to be able to give clear commands. And that acquiring of volume in those situations should not be mistaken always for unkindness. In fact, in the midst of a firefight, the kindest thing you could possibly do, if you've got a good plan and your team needs to be executing that plan, the kindest thing you could possibly do is make sure that they hear your plan, to make sure that they get their orders. If they can't hear you because you're too soft-spoken, I tell my wife this all the time, then you might as well not say anything. My boys are noisy. They get that from their father's side. Their mother and their mother's people are not loud, boisterous, noisy people. But the mullets, loud, boisterous, noisy people. The McFarlands, at least my mother, my grandmother, they have no trouble with volume. No problem making sure that they are heard. So for us, the struggle is not to get louder. We've got that down pat. The thing we have to be intentional about sometimes is when to lower your voice, to talk quieter, to listen. And yet, by contrast, other people, they struggle in the opposite direction, like my wife, for instance. 
And I love her. I love that she's soft-spoken. That's one of the things that was attractive to me. That's one of the reasons why I married her, is that she is so soft-spoken and gentle. But six boys, loud boys, rambunctious, energetic, full of ideas, sometimes bickering, sometimes excitedly telling stories over top of one another, sometimes getting distracted, sometimes just making noise for no apparent reason. Why are we making noise right now? What did that noise mean? It was just you being undisciplined, son. Shh. Stop it. And yet, if instructions need to be given, chores need to be followed through with, correction needs to be delivered, I've had to tell my wife, sweetie, honey, you're going to have to get louder. Not because you're angry. Not because you're upset. Don't wait until the emotion is there to get louder. Get louder strategically And then as soon as you can, get quieter again. Once you can be heard over the activity level, get quieter again because it's exhausting to have to raise your voice all the time. You can't sustain that. So you got to teach your team to get quieter so they can actually listen. But when it's your own household and when it's your own kids, you have a benefit there, an opportunity there, a position there which broader society, communication with the general public, and even with the church, yes, the church does not afford offering corrective discipline, particularly in our circumstance. We have a lot of people who are stiff-necked, who don't want to be contradicted, whether that is on the subject of gender and sexuality, or increasingly on race, whether that is on their attitudes towards marriage and parenting, whether that's their attitude towards doctrine, any way you slice it, they can't stand being corrected. They are stiff-necked, rebellious, like unreasoning animals. They know how they feel, and when what you say makes them not feel good, they scram. And so if we err on the side of caution... What happens with that trend? Doesn't that trend become entrenched? Doesn't it dry and harden, solidify like so much concrete? And doesn't it only get more difficult to change that condition to where our hearts of stone are taken out and replaced with hearts made of flesh? A heart of stone can't beat, can't circulate blood through the body, but a heart of flesh, by God's grace, by God's design, when he performs that procedure, puts that back into us, spiritually speaking, intellectually speaking, emotionally speaking, when he does that, then we can truly live. And isn't that the big idea? Imagine, if you will, someone always nervously living their life, erring on the side of caution, because They made it their mission to live by John Piper's admonition. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this who is in that situation, nobody specifically comes to mind, but if any of you are constantly struggling with anxiety, depression, be a little bit more cautious about caution. Sometimes excessive caution is not cautious at all, actually. It's self-destructive. Paralytic. Sometimes it keeps us from living the productive life in Christ that 
the scriptures over and over and over in every book, chapter, and verse are calling us to. They will know the truth and the truth will set them free. We have to be uncompromising on the truth. We have to be clear on the truth in every respect. We have to be humble, yes. We have to be bold too. Check out, I believe the author's name was Dixon. Check out Humilitas about the need for combining humility with confidence. We don't want to, for those of us who are more naturally confident, we don't want to confuse humility for weakness, for insecurity. For those of us who are more naturally humble or have sat under teaching, which over and over and over again, like a mantra, has urged humility at the expense of boldness. We should not confuse boldness for severity, arrogance. We have to be like Christ in our humility and in our boldness and be able to do both of those things, the being humble and the being bold simultaneously for God's glory, for one another's benefit, that we might truly live in the here and now. That's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.